Welcome to Truth Matters with Terry McCarthy. Today is Tuesday, May 12th, and I want to look at the political facets to COVID-19, politics, and the coronavirus. In 1976, Dr. M.F. Viner wrote an article for the Journal of Medical Economics entitled, Don't Waste a Crisis. What Viner meant by this is that a medical crisis can be used to improve aspects of personality, mental health, or lifestyle. But nowadays, this expression is applied to economic exploitation of a crisis to promote or advance political agendas. Don't waste a crisis. I think that is happening in our nation and in our world with the coronavirus. Please know, I don't think this virus is man-made. I'm not sure how it was loosed onto the world stage, but one thing I can speak definitively about is how it is being manipulated by the press and political agents. Yesterday, I received a message from my city council that absentee ballot applications will be sent to every person in our county. The message read, All Johnson County, Kansas voters to receive vote-by-mail applications. Concerns about gathering during the COVID-19 pandemic have led to an increased interest in voting by mail. The Johnson County Election Office is sending advanced voting by mail applications for both the August and November elections to all Johnson County residents in May. That is a political agenda. How do I know? Because Democrats have been pushing for mail-in votes since they lost the election in 2016. What political advantage is there to mail-in votes? Well, it has a higher risk of voter fraud. No ID, no proof of citizenship, no proof of one vote, one person. Aliases, for example, can and are easily mistaken as another voter. This would be a catastrophe for our election. For example, we live in a neighborhood of just over 300 homes. That's just our neighborhood alone. Weekly, without exaggeration or hyperbole, we have mail delivery problems. I looked online once and our post office in Shawnee, Kansas, had the highest complaint by customers of any other post office in the state of Kansas. The majority of the complaints were about mishandling of mail, lost, wrongly delivered, incorrect mail hold, and mistakenly returned to sender. The U.S. Postal Service is the last agency on earth I'd ever trust with my vote. Mailing out absentee voter registration is costly. This is terribly expensive and a waste of taxpayer money. Why not just let people ask for the applications rather than to go to the expense to send them to everyone? Why do we have to have mass distribution? It adds a cog in the machine that doesn't need to be there. And a bigger question is, if I'm safe to go to my local liquor store with less than 300 square feet, if I'm safe to go into a 7-Eleven or Quick Trip without limiting numbers of customers, Why in the world wouldn't I be safe at a polling station? I always say, when something doesn't make sense, corruption is involved.
Political agendas? Yes. Why are churches to limit attendance and in some states to remain closed? And yet Home Depot is allowed to stay open. And as one employee told me recently, there can be up to 600 customers in a Home Depot at one time. 600. Again, when things don't add up, when things are illogical, corruption is involved every single time. A new report out of Oxford, Great Britain today says that a surveillance rate of over 40 infected people per 10,000 is required for a disease to be declared an epidemic. The figures from the Office of National Statistics place the current rate of 24 infected persons in 10,000, while a separate study from the Royal College of General Practitioners in Oxford found that the rate could be as low as three confirmed or tested cases in 10,000. Professors Carl Hennigan and Tom Jefferson of the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford said that the low numbers from the Royal College may be attributable to asymptomatic people not getting tested, but added that the overall number of respiratory infections in the nation has dropped, quote, the current community transmission of any COVID is low and not at epidemic levels, the professor said in an interview with the Daily Telegraph newspaper in London. They go on to say, quote, rates of upper respiratory tract infections and lower respiratory tract infections have fallen, but a majority of this decline would happen naturally at this time of the year with the onset of spring. So far, the team at Oxford and the ONS have taken samples from 7,087 people across the nation, yet it plans on testing some 300,000 people over the course of the next year as tests become more readily available. Professor Hennigan said that the current rate of infection, quote, suggests that at peak, We had more cases than we realized, but that the virus is less deadly than initially believed. So wider spread infections, perhaps, but not as lethal as anticipated. On Saturday, Dr. Deborah Burks of the U.S. White House Task Force said that the CDC report of cases and fatalities is off by about 25%. She believes there are 25% less deaths and cases than the CDC reports. I personally use the CDC. The CDC reports um, are lower than WHO or Worldometer. So that means that the rates of WHO or Worldometer are half of what they actually report. So why? Why would one political party want to exploit this virus? Oddly, for many Democrat party leaders, this virus must seem like a godsend. Let's look at what were the five most powerful positive things about President Trump's administration. What were the five most positive things that he had going for him as we neared November's election? One, the economy. Two, Low unemployment rates, the lowest in the history of our nation. Three, tough tariffs on China. 
by the way, they were canceled in April. Four huge Trump rallies. Five religious freedoms. And I can also say that 4 million Americans lifted off of food stamps since his election because of household economic upturns is a positive as well. So let's say six. Six positive, powerful, important points of President Trump's presidency. The economy, low unemployment rates, tough tariffs on China, huge Trump rallies, religious freedom, and 4 million Americans lifted off of food stamps due to household economic upturn. All of those things were destroyed by the response to the virus. Why would Trump's opponents want that to go away? Do you see the inconsistencies? I would say over 90% of regulation put into play as a response to the Wuhan virus are irrelevant and unnecessary, and certainly not backed by science. Please listen to my other two coronavirus podcasts to see exactly what I mean. In my lifetime, there was another deadly flu epidemic in the United States. The flu spread from Hong Kong to the U.S., arriving here December 1968 and peaking a year later. It ultimately killed 100,000 Americans. The majority were over the age of 65, but there were 1 million lives lost worldwide. The population of the United States was 200 million back then, as compared with 328 million today. In terms of lethality, it was deadlier than COVID-19, but nothing happened. No schools closed. No events were canceled. Shops remained open. Churches remained opened. In 1968 and 69, according to researcher Nathaniel Moore, the H3N2 pandemic killed more individuals in the United States than the combined total number of American fatalities during both the Vietnam and Korean Wars. And this happened in the lifetime of every American over the age of 52. I was nine years old, and I have no memory of this at all. It's mostly forgotten today. Why is that? Nothing was closed by force. Schools stayed open. Businesses did too. You could go to the movies. You could go to bars and restaurants. Concerts like Woodstock went full force through it. In fact, Woodstock took place at the peak, at the height of death. There was no thought given to the virus, which, like today's virus, was dangerous, mainly for an aging demographic. Stock markets didn't crash because of the flu. Congress didn't pass any legislation. The Federal Reserve did nothing. Not a single governor acted to enforce social distancing, curve flattening, even though Hundreds of thousands of people were hospitalized. There was no banning of crowds. No mothers were arrested for taking their kids to other people's homes. No surfers were arrested. No daycares were shut, even though there were more infant deaths with that virus than there is with this one. There were no suicides, no unemployment, no drug overdose, which could be attributed to that flu. And yes, the media covered the pandemic but it never became a big issue. The only action governments took during that time was to collect data, 
watch and wait, encouraging testing and vaccines. The medical community took the primary responsibility for disease mitigation, as one might expect. It was widely assumed that disease required medical, not political, responses. It's not as if we had governments unwilling to intervene in other matters. I mean, for pity's sakes, we had the Vietnam War, social welfare, public housing, urban renewal, and the rise of Medicare and Medicaid. We had a president at the time swearing to cure all poverty, illiteracy, and disease. Government was as intrusive as it had always been in our short history. But for some reason, there was no thought given to shutdowns. Which raises the question, why is this virus different? We will be trying to figure this out for decades to come. Was the difference that we have mass media invading our lives with endless notifications blowing up in our pockets? Was there some change in philosophy such that we now think politics is responsible for all existing aspects of our lives? Was there a political element here in that the media blew this widely out of proportion as a revenge against Trump and all of his deplorables? Or did our excessive adoration of predictive modeling get out of control to the point that we let a physicist with ridiculous models frighten the world's governments into violating the human rights of over a billion people? Maybe all of these were factors, or maybe there's something darker and more nefarious at work here, like the conspiracy theorists would have us believe. By way of personal recollection, my own mother and father were part of a generation that believed they had developed sophisticated views of viruses. They understood that less vulnerable people getting them not only strengthened immune systems, but contributed to disease mitigation by reaching herd immunity. They had a whole protocol to make a child feel better about being sick. I got a cool cloth on my head, unlimited popsicles, Vicks rubbed on my chest, and a humidifier in my room. And guess what? I was hardly ever sick. My parents' generation actually took us to other kids' houses to expose us to disease so we could catch it while we were young. Anyone else remember that? That if you got the disease as a child, it didn't impact you quite as greatly? How much prosperity, culture, technology, science, and lifetime memories are we losing in this quarantine? What happened between then and now? Was there some kind of lost knowledge as happened when we were dealing with scurvy? When we once had sophistication and then the knowledge was lost and we had to refine it? For COVID-19, we reverted to medical... For COVID-19, excuse me, we reverted to medieval-style understanding and policies, even in the 21st century. And for me, it's all very strange and quite off. The contrast between 1968 and 2020 couldn't be more striking. My parents' generation were smart. They were independent thinkers, not afraid, and knew their own voices something that prevented them from being bullied by big governments and small alike. So in closing, I'd like to ask one big, fat question. The people, especially the social and political leaders of our time, who say this virus is catastrophic, 
who want the shutdown till next year, who want to restrict church going and beach going and life. Are they people who you'd respect on any other topics? Are they leaders that have ever lied to the public before or made false allegations? Are these the people you admire, respect, and most importantly, are these the people you trust? If you say no to any of these questions, then why on earth would we trust them now? And what motives are behind their rhetoric? Well, this has been Truth Matters with Terry McCarthy. And let me just say a few final words about my podcast. Truth Matters with Terry McCarthy is a podcast designed to look at today's difficult topics and hopefully helping Christians process the world around them using the clear grid of Scripture to help us know what we believe and why we believe it. Because truth matters. It really, really matters. But I have three social media platforms, and each one plays a different role in my work and in my life. The first and the oldest is my blog, Terry McCarthy Blah Blah Blog. I've been writing this blog for over 10 years, and I cover a range of topics but primarily use it for Christian exhortation and encouragement. The topics are broad, but the focus is very myopic. What does the Bible say about this? Sometimes, but not often, the blog and the podcast cross-pollinate. I try not to be redundant, but there's times that a blog audience will not listen to a podcast, and vice versa. Then, on Fridays, I do a video blog on YouTube. It's called a vlog. And this is where I tell stories about God and His goodness. I share about my old maiden missionary life and some of the miracles I've seen in my 40-year walk with God. The vlog is fun and uplifting. And yes, I always seem to cry when I recall the goodness of God and all that He has done in my life. Each platform is different and serves a different purpose. Also, I pray over each article, blog, and the content of each vlog each and every week. Something that a lot of people do not know about me, and something I absolutely hate saying, is some information about my academic background. I have a bachelor's degree in journalism and worked as a journalist in both radio and TV. I also taught journalism at university level for a while in the United States. Also, I hold a Ph.D. from the University of Kansas. It was hard work, hard-earned, and it took five years of my life to get that, and I did it the old-fashioned resident style, not online. Does a Ph.D. make me smart? Oh, heavens no. But it taught me to do research. Doctoral courses in rigorous research taught me how to ferret out information, dig for it, mine for it, and then how to know if what I am finding is valid, true, and generalizable. I have served on doctoral committees and master's thesis committees for nearly 20 years, evaluating, judging, and correcting other people's research. There's a criterion. It isn't done willy-nilly, and it is never based on emotion or preconceived notions. One morning, a few weeks before the quarantine hit, I woke up early and heard the Lord say to me, start a podcast. Little did I know back in February what would be what we would be facing as a nation, in fact, as a global community. But I take this work seriously, and I truly feel it is my calling. 
I want to help others sift through the misinformation we are often fed by news sources, conspiracy theory websites, and discernment writers. I want to know what are the facts and what is provable and what is just rumor. It takes a lot of time and effort and focus. But as I said, I believe that is what God has called me to do. If you love the blog, great. I have over 51,000 views on that blog, and I usually average about 200 readers a day. If you love the YouTube stories, awesome. I do too. I always look forward to Vlog Friday. But if you are wanting to see another side of today's hot button issues, and if you want to hear what I've learned in my research and digging, then the podcast is your choice. If you like the podcast and feel it's useful or that I'm giving helpful information, please share it. Give me a thumbs up or leave a comment. I always appreciate feedback. It's good to know people are listening. Now, until May 31st, I won't be doing a regular podcast. Daryl, my husband, works for the academic network arm of Forum of Christian Leaders. Every May, the European Leadership Forum, an association branch of FOCAL, meets in Poland for the big annual conference. This year, due to the Wuhan virus, everything has gone online. We have over 2,600 participants with speakers like J.P. Moreland, Oz Guinness, and John Lennox. I even have a workshop this year and a network presentation. These two presentations take a lot of time and effort and energy. So unless something writes itself, I don't plan on doing a podcast until the conference is over. So until June 1, this has been Truth Matters with Terry McCarthy. Thanks for joining me today, and I'll see you in June. Blessings.